0: Being aware of when you react is the first step to being able to disarm those reactions. So if you know that every time your boss talks about working late or working more that you freak out, being conscious of that is the first step. And then coming up with a strategy. Instead of getting mad next time, I'm gonna count backwards from 75 to 25. Anytime you engage your prefrontal cortex in thinking about something other than what is making you stressed is how you end up defusing the stress response that's going on.
1: Our guest today, Erica First, is the founder of Moodily, a science-backed mood management solution for the workplace that helps improve employee performance and well-being. Prior to Moodily, Erica spent over 25 years in the advertising industry and won 70 awards for her work. But in an unexpected turn of events, Erica was hospitalized in 2015 after suffering stress-related vision loss.
2: This sparked her interest to study the impacts of burnout on employees, and she went on to complete a two-year postgraduate program in the Neuroscience of Mental Health and a Master's of Science in Organizational Psychology. Today, we have the privilege of speaking to Erica on how to combat stress and burnout by managing our mood. This is a topic close to our hearts and one that we know many of you will resonate with. Enjoy this episode. Hi. This is Janice. And I'm Sarah N.
1: And we're your host for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional.
2: Each week we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally.
1: Hi Erica, really happy that you're joining us on the Explore This podcast today and dialing in all the way from Milan
0: as well. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Erica, you have such a fascinating background. You are a stress specialist, a neuroscience postgrad, and award-winning executive in advertising, and the founder of Moodily, which is a mood management solution. But before we dive into our discussion today on mood management, could you first start off by sharing with our listeners a bit more about your background and how you got into the work that you do today with helping organizations manage stress?
0: Absolutely. So as you said, I come from a background of advertising. I spent 25 years as an advertising exec. I won over 70 awards in in my field for 10 years from 2005 to 2015. I was the head of advertising media and digital for Ray-Ban. And the one thing I actually do want to stress about this is that I loved my job, like absolutely loved my job. I loved the people I was working with. I loved the people I was working for. I loved the work I was doing. I was never bored. I did travel a lot. I had a young child. At the time, she's not so young anymore. But at the time, you know, it wasn't uncommon for me to fly to Asia for one night or to go to LA for a meeting and then get back on a plane. So I did have a very sort of, I wouldn't even call it stressful. It was just exhausting lifestyle. I was trying to be present for both my work and my family or my daughter. So I would try and cut down my business trips to a short, Um, a moment as possible. And I say this because I woke up on April 8th of 2015 and I couldn't see out of my right eye. And at first I thought it was like really weird. I thought, well, maybe I'm just tired or whatever. And I remember sitting through a meeting. It was a legal meeting. We were going through a contract and I'm supposed to be concentrating on the contract. And all I can do is I'm like covering my eye and uncovering my eye to see like, am I really having vision problems here? So they had me check in to the hospital a day later and I stayed there for 10 days, did tests on everything, like was being tested for every neurological problem on the planet. And what they ultimately concluded was that the body sometimes has domino effects. Not all of our illnesses are straight lines between cause and symptom. And so what they said was that it was likely... I burnt out my optic nerve, which probably came from like a disintegration of the myelin sheath, which was probably due to a uh, vitamin deficiency, which was due to my lifestyle and stress. So they came to the conclusion that it was stress-related. And I had kind of already been in a place where I was sort of re-examining what I wanted to do with my future. I mean, I was 42 years old, but I was thinking like if I'm going to do a second chapter what's it going to look like? I can't keep working at these levels. My daughter's going to be an adolescent too and I wanted to at least have eyes on her as she was growing up. So I left my job and I took a year off to kind of decamp and one thing led to another as I was trying to sort of figure out what I wanted to do with my future and I got an ad for this program, this postgrad program at King's College in London for the neuroscience of mental health. And it responded to all of the boxes that I kind of wanted to tick because I knew I wanted to get into something a little bit more meaningful. Mm -hmm. I was still trying to figure out exactly what had happened to me. Like, how did I burn out? I loved my job. I didn't hate my job. I wasn't sad. I wasn't tired. Like none of those things were wrong with me. How did I end up burning out? I didn't fit any of the stereotypes of it. So I was hungry to understand what had happened to me but also like, how do we prevent it? Or how can we avoid that? Is there a way to stop it? Or can you be clued in that it's happening to you before you wake up one day and just can't see? And so that was kind of what... That class is what put me on this path. Mm-hmm. And as we were studying, we did an entire section on stress and how the stress works in the body, how you respond to it emotionally, psychologically, physiologically, the dynamics that are at play in your body, in your brain. So we actually make an unconscious choice to be stressed about something or not. And usually it's an automatic reaction and we don't even think about it. We're not aware of it. It just happens. But if you can shift the thought or change the thought or train the thought, if you intervene on the thought, you can actually stop the physiological process that happens as a result of stress. And I was absolutely fascinated by this. Uh, And that's where I put the majority of my attention and research was figuring out how to work with your thought, your cognitive processes to help you manage your mood in real time.
2: Perfect segue into the next question, Erica, because that's when you discovered the clinical technique known as mood induction, when you were studying this neuroscience of mental health, which then led you to create moodily. So what exactly is mood induction about and how can this technique help to shift our mental well-being as a whole?
0: Okay, well, mood induction is its kind of like a fancy scientific name for something that's actually quite pedestrian. Mood induction is a category of techniques, let's say, that are meant to press specific buttons in your thoughts and in your emotion triggers to cause you to feel certain feelings. You can't do emotion research in real life on people because you would have to have like a scientific team waiting in the corner for you to be in a specific mood or a specific emotion. You have to generate an emotion in a clinical setting. And so they would bring in people that were in a neutral mood or people that were angry or people that were sad or happy, and they would do these mood induction techniques to them. They would put them in different moods. They would run these tests. And then at the end, they would give them another mood induction technique that would calm them down and send them home in a neutral space. And I was fascinated by this because I said, if you can do that in a clinical setting, you can do it in a real life setting. What is this magic that they do to get people to change moods? And I dig into it and it's creative materials, videos, music, audios, imagery, visualization exercises. And so I'm reading all this and I'm thinking, I just spent the last 25 years of my life winning awards for manipulating people's emotions to buy specific products. This is what I do for a living. you know. So, <laughs> like I, I can make you a mood film that'll put you into any mood I want. I've made my career out of. So I get in touch with one of the universities that's here called the and one of the few universities that has a department focused on discrete emotions, which are like our nuanced moods, if you will. And I got in touch with one of the professors there and I showed her my hypothesis, which is... I think that I can use mood induction techniques if they're properly created according to the scientific parameters to change people's moods in real time to help combat stress and stress reactions. I still remember her face to this day, but she was like, it's so simple and yet no one has ever thought of it before. And I was like, what? Okay, cool. But does it work? Will it work? Is it scientifically sound? Or the second I launch it, am I going to have an entire field of science coming for me? And she like, no, no, it's completely sound. And so we kind of worked together on creating, she would help me sort of define what were the parameters of the mood and what were the emotion and what sort of the components cause and stuff like that. And then I worked to write the scripts and pick the music and find the footage. So I ended up making an app. That is filled with creative material that is meant to help you shift your mood in one of three directions more calm, more happy, or more confident using the work that we put together through mood induction techniques.
1: That's really fascinating that something that is set in a scientific sphere and Being influenced by different parameters can actually be taken into real life and be implemented in a very, very practicable kind of way. Mood induction will certainly be something that can help people combat stress. I think no matter the age or the background that we're in, most of us would have gone through some stressful situations or another. And especially in a time of a global pandemic like this, when there's so much uncertainty, what was the biggest lesson that you learned about managing your stress, especially since you went through a personal experience where you had a burnout and resulting in stress-related vision loss?
0: So the first answer is there is not a one-size-fits-all solution because stress itself is personal and subjective. There are things that I will respond to that will make me stressed that won't make you stressed. And so it's very unique depending on your life experience, depending on where your skills are. There are a multitude of stress interventions that work. Mindfulness works meditation works, exercise works, diet works. And actually they're all components to it. They're all important components. There's always going to be a physical an emotional and a cognitive aspect to a successful stress intervention strategy. But it really depends on what you're comfortable with because some people, for example, meditation makes me more stressed. So <laughs> I get no <laughs> really? I get, I, I, get no, I get no benefit from it because I, that's just the way I'm wired and of course everybody's like oh you you haven't practiced it enough if you do it more you get better at it and it's entirely possible but there is actually a lot of scientific evidence that there are some people that just don't respond well to meditation. but to me like how I define meditation is anytime you turn the thinking off, So that happens to me when I cook, you don't have time for all the conversation and the chatter in your head. So that's my meditation. The best solution. It depends. I I think where the lesson that I learned was, there were a couple of things is first of all, don't ignore your body and don't ignore your intuitions. It would frequently happen to me where I would wake up and be like, oh my God, I'm so tired. Like I'm just exhausted. And I would say, doesn't matter. Get up. Like, take the extra shot of espresso, take another B12, do whatever you have to push, like push forward. And as someone who could be classified as toxic productivity addicted, I never allowed myself to slow down. And one of the first things that I did when I was during in that post-stress phase or the post-burnout phase is I would have days where I was like, I don't really feel like getting out of bed, not in a depressed way, like the world is too much for me, but just like, I just really don't feel like getting out of bed and my normal instinct would have been to push through and i started allowing myself to not have to show up all the time and that it was like the tiniest little gesture but it changed so much, it had this ripple effect. Everything has a ripple effect in our lives. So I started making a point of saying anything my body needs, I'm going to give it to it. So even intuitive eating, you know, it's like, I feel like eating grapes today. I would go out and do that. And once you get into a habit of giving yourself what you need, you start to form boundaries that you wouldn't have had before because you were trampling all over them yourself. So now you're like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't feel like doing that. I know what I need and I don't need to be at that lunch or I don't need to see that person or I don't need to go to that dinner at that time. So you start to become much more in tune with your own needs, your own desires, and you start respecting them, which is the ultimate thing, because that's when you really start respecting yourself and what you need, and you start taking care of yourself. So, to me, that's the first place that self care starts is in learning to read your own signals in your body and your mind and your emotions, and then being able to properly respond to give yourself what it is that you need in that moment.
1: That's such a good insight, Erica. One other point that I'm actually quite intrigued to explore, especially in terms of recognizing stress, you talked earlier about not ignoring your body, not ignoring your intuition. And I think in a previous podcast, I've heard you describe how recognizing the triggers that sometimes even stems back to childhood traumas is one way that we can also use to combat certain stresses and anxieties. Could you speak a little more about that?
0: Yes, your triggers. Now, they don't always have to come from childhood trauma. Some people have had no trauma in childhood or or what we would classically call trauma. But what happens is that our brains don't fully form. They're not fully formed until we're about 25 years old. And the part of our brain that is our wise thinker, the prefrontal cortex, the one who's able to reason and think things through, that doesn't get developed until about 20, 25 years old. But your brain is forming conclusions based on its experience with the outside world that are planted in your brain. So they will go back to experiences you had when you first started gaining consciousness four or five years old of like, if I do this, then that happens. Therefore, in order to protect myself, I need to do this. There was an experiment that they did many years ago. I think it was in like early 1900s. And it was at a series of like Johns Hopkins um, is an experiment called baby Albert. And the baby was very small, like eight months old, nine months old. And they did a process of fear conditioning with this child. The, The research would be completely unethical today. It would never get approved, but... It, but it's one of the most famous psychological experiments that's been done in history. So they they take this baby and they show the baby a bunny rabbit, right? Which is like the cutest, They're like who could be afraid of a bunny rabbit. Only every time they show him the bunny rabbit, they make a hideous noise. So he starts to associate the noise with the rabbit. And then it gets to a point, this is classic conditioning. It gets to a point where they take away the noise and they just show the rabbit and it provokes a fear response. Now, what they found in that was that it wasn't he wasn't just afraid of the rabbit anytime they showed him anything white and fuzzy including santa claus's beard including other toys he would have the same reaction because our brains they exist to keep us alive and their primary focus is that we make it to the end of the day still breathing so they are hyper our brains are hyper vigilant for any threats in our environment And so it casts a very wide net as to what can be what can cause us fear. So when we're kids, just like poor baby Albert, we're experiencing the world, but we don't have our reasoning brain to be able to say, oh no, it's okay. It's just a bunny that is just this mean doctor who's making weird noises. And we form all of these behavioral responses when we're children that we carry forward with us into adulthood that we're completely unaware of. And when I used to do some work as like a private coach, uh, empowerment coach for women. The first thing, when we would get into a session where we were talking about where the block was, and I would just simply say to them, what happened when you were a kid that scared you like that? And Without fail, every person I do this exercise with, because the brain's like, I've just been waiting to talk about this for forever. And it serves you up the memory. And so everyone will bring up, it's like, oh, I remember I was four years old or I was eight years old. It always happens right around there. We were at the amusement park or we were in the supermarket. I lost my mother. I freaked out. And now anytime I'm in the subway or anytime I'm in this kind of supermarket or anytime I'm in wide open spaces, I have a panic attack because that memory has now implanted a behavioral reaction, which we carry forward for 20, 30, 40 years until we get conscious on it. And so being aware of when you react is the first step to being able to disarm those reactions. So if you know that every time your boss talks about working late or working more or whatever, that you freak out, being conscious of that is the first step. And then coming up with a strategy, like, okay, instead of getting mad next time, I'm going to count backwards from 75 to 25. Anytime you engage your prefrontal cortex in thinking about something other than what is making you stressed is how you end up defusing the stress response that's going on. I
2: just wanted to also touch a little bit on concept that you mentioned a moment ago on toxic productivity, which is essentially this phenomenon that has been fueled by this pandemic, and you refer to it as the evil love child of workaholism and overachieving in an article with British Vogue, and we'll be sure to leave that link to this article in our show notes as well. So, can you explain to us what does toxic productivity mean, and at what point does Productivity become toxic. And more importantly, we'd love to hear a little bit more about
0: how we can find that right balance. There's not a lot of science on toxic productivity because it's a new coin phrase that came out during the pandemic, but the dynamics of it have been pretty well researched through workaholism. The difference between workaholism and toxic productivity to me lies in the domain. I'll explain. Once upon a time, you would go to work, right? Or like a workaholic goes to work all the time. And probably most of us thought, oh, well, they would be home if they could, but they have to work, right? It was never of like, they're actively choosing to not specifically be here. They're earning money. They're doing what they have to for the family, blah, blah, blah. The pandemic created a situation where there is no work, right? Or for the people who weren't in those uh, jobs that needed to be there all the time, let's say the more corporate jobs that were working from home, we took away that person's escape area and they were working from home. Those people would have had a tremendous difficulty in getting through the day without having to invent New things to achieve and to accomplish. So they would have been looking around the house for like, what can I fix? Or what lessons can I take? Or I'm going to learn Latin dancing. Uh, Someone who literally can't sit still, they have to be continuously productive. Now, one of the things I talk about in my article is that the problem with toxic productivity is that it responds to all the classic canons of behavioral addiction, meaning that you do more and more because it continues to provide you with hits of dopamine, which make you feel good and keep you encouraged to keep going, It is driven by some hidden motivation here, which can be perhaps someone wasn't wealthy as a child or had financial uh, hardships, or maybe they had lots of responsibility put on them in early childhood, or perhaps their parents just told them that they were the golden child and that they had to be unique and had to be better than everyone. There's a compulsion that's born in childhood, which pushes them to equate productivity with surviving better. If I produce more, then I'm better equipped to survive and I will never go back to whatever this original state that caused the uncomfortableness. Now, this is how addictions form, right? There's a driving compulsion and then there's a solution to it. The problem is is that with normal addictions, and I put that in quotes, there's shame around the addiction gambling, drinking, overeating, sex, like all of those are porn. All of those are Addictions, we tend to hide because we don't want the judgment that comes um, from the outside world. With toxic productivity, it's exactly the opposite because the entire world around you is encouraging you to do it more because every time you achieve more, produce more, you get more money, you get more compliments. It's like actively encouraging somebody to take more cocaine, like see how much you can do, you know? So it's very dangerous because of this final factor. And to me, the fact that it is not only accepted but encouraged is what makes it so subversive to identify and to heal from. Um, I always knew I was a workaholic. But once this idea of toxic productivity came up, I'm one of those people that if you are i'm getting better but if you ask me like to go for a walk i would say why like where are we going what's the point what do i accomplish what do i achieve uh, because otherwise i can use my time better elsewhere and this obviously puts pressure on the people that are around you because we're like well we're performing up here where are you on this benchmark so there will never be enough you will never be able to produce enough in order to satisfy it's an unscratchable itch uh, and so So it has to come up to the person where they just say, this is enough. I decide this is enough. And I decide when I want to be productive. And I decide when I don't want to be productive. And one of the things that you can do is like to capitalize on the addictive part of it, which is I need to have everything scheduled in and be doing something. You say, okay, well, now the thing we're going to be doing is we're going to be relaxing for 20 minutes and we're going to schedule in 20 minutes of relaxing where we don't do anything. And I mean, it sounds ridiculous to do this, but the idea is that we then capitalize on that brain habit forming dynamic where the more I do it, the more I'm comfortable doing it again. It's also like action precedes motivation. So if you're like, no, one day I'm going to be motivated to calm down, that will never happen. If you just start saying, okay, let me try and calm down. Eventually the motivation to calm down actually comes.
2: Janice and I, we both come from the legal professions and and that background in and of itself, there is this mindset or badge of honor where young litigators, young lawyers, individuals that are at the early stages of the career, especially those that are trying to prove themselves, they want to be able to say, oh yeah, I stayed up all night last night to draft that submission, or I slept for only two hours last night. You know, there's this sort of badge of honor about the fact that it seems as if you are that productive in your work but as you have alluded to it's definitely something that is not healthy and especially in a workplace that promotes that if you see that a manager actually is impressed with that it actually means that they're promoting this toxic productivity which is not healthy in the long run and I love how you gave that suggestion and it sounds very extreme but it it might be important to schedule in that relaxing time because for some people it might not be something that is a natural um, action that they might want to take on their own?
0: No, usually not. And that's why I say you have to capitalize on what their sort of dysfunctions are. So it's kind of like inverting the addiction or using the addiction to treat yourself healthy. And one more thing I forgot to say is the whole thing with toxic productivity is not just about health and well being. Employees who work 80 hours a week and who don't sleep. If you check their work, they actually put the company at a greater risk for accidents and mistakes because you cannot function properly unless your brain is rested, well-fed, and calm. If it's in a constant state of overdrive, you are not doing your best thinking. You do not have access to the lateral associative kind of thinking. It's very sort of instinctive. So people in this state can actually make a lot more mistakes. They can cause accidents at work. And this is really the benefit in it for companies. It's not good You may love the people that are performing like that, but they're actually performing not as well as they could be if they were working less. That is so true
1: because um, there was some research that uh, we came across very recently that Uh, was actually from LinkedIn Glint platform that actually studied, I can't remember how many employees that they studied, it was in the thousands. But basically, they studied all these employees in the year of 2020 and found that the burnout signs have actually risen to an all-time high of 33%. And I guess that could be attributed to the lines between work and home being blurred employees working on overdrive you know at a time where all these lines are so hazy and even social support systems being put on hold due to the pandemic so it seems that lots of people are feeling increasingly overwhelmed thereby culminating in burnout so perfect segue to speak about burnout next you identified as well as a burnout survivor from the research that you have done from your own experience as well what would you say the common symptoms of burnout could look like
0: The most common one is when you wake up in the morning and you're like, I don't know if I can do this, where you just lack the emotional energy, like the thought of facing the day seems impossible or that it's just a giant mountain and you have to kind of be like, like, all right, let's gather everything that I can. And Try and face this day. That is a classic symptom of adrenal fatigue because you have overworked your stress response. Your body is flooded with cortisol and your cortisol levels are now plateaued, which means that when we wake up in the morning, we usually get like a nice kick of cortisol, like, Hey, I'm out of bed. When you have reached burnout, you've saturated your system so badly with cortisol that it's got nowhere else to go. The body stops producing it because it's like, if you have a full bathtub, you're like, turn off the water because otherwise this is going to start leaking out. So it doesn't produce anymore. And you've got this high level of it. And so when you wake up, you have nowhere to go. There's no kick anymore. <laughs> it's just like constantly there. And so that's one of the first symptoms Other symptom is increased cynicism. So especially in people who were positive, hopeful, the ones who maybe were the fighters, like, no, we can do this. No, it's going to be great. Anytime you notice like a really dramatic personality change in someone or someone is like, oh, she used to be so happy and now she's like really angry all the time or wait, didn't they used to be like more optimistic? They were kind of like the cheerleaders and now they're like, oh, that'll never work. When you see a big personality change like that, that tends to be a really solid symptom that that person is nearing a burnout. If nothing else, they're very likely going to leave their job shortly if they have the opportunity. So, that increased cynicism is another symptom. And someone who's like very reactive, also, like maybe their emotional reactions tend to be more exaggerated to the situation you know if you're like oh lunch is canceled and the person has a meltdown and you're like oh <laughs> easy killer like that that's because they're on hyperdrive right they're they've been pushed to the edge that everything seems like a big deal anymore they're just literally exhausted you know or exasperated those are kind of the three key symptoms that you would see in someone who's just really had it. And again, not everybody ends up with like a physical burnout situation. But usually, if there isn't a physiological expression of it, they are more than likely going to have to change careers or change jobs or change something. It usually coincides with the midlife crisis as well.
2: So it does appear to me from what you're saying, Erica, that burnout can manifest itself in the form of both physical, physiological, emotional, even.
0: Yeah. And because all the symptoms in the body are overlapped, There is no such thing as that. And this is one of the myths that I hope to get rid of on um, burnout. It's not a psychological issue. Most people are like, oh, she's depressed or she's anxious or like they've got mental health issues. The reason all of this is happening is because there is a physiological component to burnout you have flooded your system with cortisol which is causing hormonal imbalances all over the place especially for women because cortisol attracts estrogen but there's a whole like domino effect of physiological symptoms that show up in the body which also have an emotional and a psychological component but it is a full package there is never there is never just one thing in the body we don't have a mental health issue we have a mental health issue which stems from an emotional problem which also has a physiological component to it
2: and we've heard this being said so often, and it's something I'm sure we all know about that prevention is better than cure. And now that you've spoken a little bit about the common symptoms of burnout, although being mindful that the symptoms not, might not be the same for everyone, perhaps this can help us as we become a lot more conscious and aware of these signs. You speak a lot about how we need to be self aware about what are the triggers that might cause us to suffer or experience these burnout or stress related issues. Can you now share with us? three of your top positive habits on how we can start practicing to avoid reaching this point of burnout.
0: So first of all, I just want to underline what you've said that prevention is better than curing because once you've actually had a burnout episode to come back from it, like a full emotional, like, can't take this anymore. It can be anywhere from one to two years before you actually feel like you're yourself again. In terms of healthy habits, like I said before, it's very banal advice, but healthy living is the absolute best way to keep your body in the best shape, because even if it has all this stuff coming at it, if your body's in good shape, your immune system is healthy, you're able to respond to it better. That is the first cornerstone of resilience is physical resilience. So you want to make sure that you're eating healthy. You get enough complex carbohydrates because the brain needs glucose, but it needs like a steady stream of glucose. That's why sugar is not good because it comes in spikes and then you've got the drop down. So you want like slow release carbs protein you want to make sure you have no vitamin B or vitamin D deficiencies because vitamin B is directly connected to your mood and your energy levels vitamin D is involved in almost every cellular process in the body so those are really the two key I mean everything's important but those are the ones that like can seriously cause problems if you're deficient in them exercise is absolutely one of the best ways to deal with stress for multiple reasons not only does it build up your endorphins and your Your serotonin levels, but it also eliminates cortisol through your sweat. So that's actually you getting rid of that stress hormone simply by working out. And then, you know, there's all sorts of cognitive interventions. So finding something that works for you when you're conscious of the fact that you're stressed, it could be writing, it could be audio journaling, it could be using multimedia content, uh, music playlists, or doing meditation or doing mindfulness. The thing is, is that it's very important to catch your mood in real time. This is another point I want to underline because a lot of us can be like, I'm having a very bad day, but I'm going to wait until this afternoon or this evening to go to yoga or to do meditation or to go out drinking with my friends, which is a bad solution, by the way. But we're like, I'll just deal with it at the end of the day. As long as you have that bad mood going, your body's responses are messed up. So you want to deal with it Immediately. So you can shut. I mean, the best analogy I can do or I can give is the idea of a running faucet. When you have your bad mood on, that faucet's going. And, and until you turn it off, it's going. So, you know, we we've poured out over the sink. We've now ruined the wood floors. It's getting into our neighbor's house. It causes systemic damage. So you really want to make sure that you deal with your mood in real time.
2: On the topic of what we can practically do to avoid reaching the point of burnout, you mentioned about this very briefly, but coming back to it on creating these healthy boundaries, right? I I do want to pick your brain a little bit more to understand how do you balance that saying yes, because you're all about, like I mentioned, Janice and I early in career, and we're about proving ourselves, exploring opportunities, and at the same time, knowing when we should say no.
0: I think one of the things that I notice in the younger millennials and Gen Z entering into the workforce is that there's already a much greater attention to what you're willing to put up with and what you're not willing to put up with. There's different kind of rules that are being made especially after this pandemic with this great resignation that's going on in the United mm-hmm. States right now. Mm. People are like, "Wait a second. So all the things that I thought I couldn't survive, I've just survived and and now I have a whole new outlook on what I'm worth, what I'm willing to give to a company." I think we're going to see a very interesting shift in workplace dynamics that happen over the next five to 10 years.
1: Absolutely. This is really something I've been seeing even in Hong Kong markets as well. It's very, very volatile right now. Very high turnover even in the midst of a pandemic, which might be a bit surprising. You actually did write about this topic recently about the great resignation and you said something about how companies have to demonstrate that they value their employees and what the employees value in order to remain competitive and to keep attracting the best talent. What would you say are some effective ways that companies can do to boost overall employee morale in order to retain them?
0: You know, I think the answer is really, really simple. And it's just to be human. I read things on the internet sometimes, like uh, there's a Reddit forum that I belong to that talks about like, Toxic bosses, and I see some of the with things that people say to their employees and how they speak to them, and I'm shocked, <laughs> like genuinely shocked, because they they cross a line into inhumane. You know things that you're like, are you kidding me? You, you they're not even earning like minimum wage. You want them to come? And one was talking about like their wife was in labor or something. It was like, well, if you don't show up, you know, I'm going to find someone else. And these are just word. I hate to say like, use the Jesus principle, you know, do unto others as you would have done to you. But like, there is a line, like if your boss was treating you like that, would you be cool with it or not? I had a large team in the company that I was working for and was picked twice as the the team had the highest job satisfaction scores within the entire organization. I'm extremely demanding about the quality of the work that comes out of my office. So for me, there's no excuses. You show up. But when you show up, you show up, like you give me what you have. I'm looking at results. I'm not looking at the process. I don't care what the process looks like. So because I work with a lot of creative people and you can't put creative people into a box, they need space and they need freedom because creative doesn't come on time. It comes when the inspiration hits. So I think that may have given me a little bit more flexibility in dealing with people, knowing that not everybody works under these prescribed conditions that, and that you have to, yes, have rules, but also understand, well, she works better at night. She works better in the day. This one does that better. And this one's better at communications and this one's better at back office and creating the job for the skills of the person and and putting people in skills and jobs that their skills can allow them to be excellent at. One of the things that I also don't really love is like, we have this job, just put them there and then we'll figure out what to do with them. It's like, well, you don't set that person up for success. And then they walk around with imposter syndrome all day and they're trying to fake it till they make it, but they're scared inside that somebody's going to catch them out. And so they're aggressive because they don't want to be caught. They're stressed all the time because they don't want other people to know that they don't know what they're doing. You know, so. I I think being human, but also understanding what job you have and setting people up to succeed Mm -hmm. and be successful is the strongest motivator you can find because people want to work and they want to do well at their jobs. We're wired to be that way. Even in the most menial job, we are designed to want to do well. We just need to find ourselves in the conditions where that's possible. And to me, job design is setting people up to be successful in what they're doing.
2: I love that. It sounds so basic, you know, just treat people like human, but it, it is unfortunately sometimes overlooked by employers and and that is the unfortunate truth but like you talked about with this shift happening we're very hopeful that it is one for the better and so Erica we also took the opportunity to ask some of our listeners what they would like to ask you and so this is a question from one of our Instagram followers and avid podcast listeners as well from the Instagram handle pchin93, who asked this question. How do we assess or diagnose the state of our own mental health? Could it be possible that I might be in denial?
0: So denial is always a possibility. I don't even know if I would call it denial so much as, and forgive me the term, this is not meant in a derogatory way, but ignorance, you know, you can't know what you don't know. The first thing I would advise to anyone is study up learn how stress works, learn how it affects your body and learn what the actual symptoms are. And understand that today there's a statistic that says like 90% of doctors visits are stress related because it touches every single system in your body. And it could show up as IBS. It can show up as diabetes. It can show up as heart disease. It comes all over because it's involving all those systems. And when you see some initial signs, Give them credence or at least say, well, I've noticed that my heart rate is elevated for a long period of time. Maybe I should take a look at that. Tune into your body. Your body always gives you the first clues if it's happy or if it's not happy. And we should start to know when we're in a good space, when we're in a happy space, the next time you're happy and feeling good and feeling right. Try and take like a mental picture of how does this feel right now And then you can compare it in the future, like based on that feeling I had before and where I am now, like how different is it? I always found that to be very helpful. In terms of self-diagnosing, it's really just a matter of being open to being in tune with yourself. If you're saying, I'm tired, and it's not just that like, Last night I didn't sleep well, but it's that like I've had this weird nagging thing that's telling me that I'm really tired. That needs to be listened to. What is it? I always try and also do like a Socratic questioning drill down like, why am I responding to this? What about it? Don't I like literally almost div- giving myself a third degree? And once you drill down into the questions, it's like, okay, well, why am I afraid? And then you get to the answer of what's actually going on. Because usually the way we react to things or things we react to... The root cause is far more different than what we think it is. So doing those sort of self-evaluations and self-interviews to try and get to the root of why don't I feel good? Or why is this upsetting me? Why does this make me mad? Why am I sad? Why am I not sleeping? Don't just accept the fact like it's been six months and I'm angry every day. Uh why am I angry every day? What's bothering me? Literally drill down into that until you, you get to an answer.
1: And sometimes these self-evaluations can be hard because it reveals truths that we don't want to know.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> But thank oh, you yeah. so much for that. They are always hard. And usually what happens is, so there's a famous saying from Carl Jung, which is until you get clear on what's going on, in yourself, you externalize it and it comes to you as fate. It's like someone comes and pisses us off, but it's really an internal thing that we're dealing with. We get clear on our issues from our experiences with other people. Such wise words. And
1: Erica, as we are wrapping up now, the one question that we do like to ask our guests at the end of every episode is, what is the one thing you recently explored that surprised
0: you? It's not new, but it's something that I frequently discover on a daily basis. And I love it is the concept of synchronicity which also comes from Carl Jung, is when you have those things that like you're talking to somebody and they say something that you were thinking like five minutes beforehand, or you think about a friend that you haven't talked to him forever and they call you the next day. I've had a lot of those happen over the last couple of weeks. And those always, always surprise and delight me because I always find them like almost like glitches in the matrix, you know, and, but it it calls you out that maybe there is something someone listening. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well that's usually Facebook. I always have a conversation. (laughs) And the next day I get an ad for whatever it was that I was talking about. So,
1: And Erica, where can our guests find you if they want to know more about what
0: you do to get more access to your thought leadership articles? Well, they can come to my website, which is moodily.com. And there's my whole blog there that has all the articles that I write. Otherwise on Instagram at moodily.wellness or you can find me also on LinkedIn.
2: So thank you so much, Erica, for your time, for dialing in And chatting with us all the way from Italy, Erica, you've taken a lot of time to share with us about the importance of not ignoring our body, listening to intuition, and recognizing that it's okay to feel like you don't want to get out of bed. And you also spoke about how to not fall into the toxic productivity trap, how we can possibly schedule relaxing time if that's what our body wants understanding and learning how stress can manifest itself in very different ways within our bodies but also more importantly one of my biggest takeaways is definitely about noticing the signs and tuning into our body and i love the example you give about taking a mental snapshot of what your body feels like when you're happy or when you're at your best self so thank you so much for this time that you spent with us erica my pleasure if you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends.
1: We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E, this podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then!